Tail catch your net worth with magic internet money. Hello and welcome to the Magic Internet Money Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Mills, and this is a crossover episode with my friend Brian, aka Ledger Status. Brian is a very well-followed Twitter influencer who has a podcast on and who tweets about cryptocurrency trading. I've done podcast episodes with my altcoiner friends in the past, and this is another one of those episodes. On Twitter, obviously we know if you've been on Twitter, on crypto Twitter, Bitcoin Twitter, there's a lot of division between the Bitcoin and crypto camps. I like to straddle both Bitcoin and crypto, and even though I don't recommend anyone trade cryptocurrencies unless they really understand what they're doing and treat it like a business, I'm not one of those Bitcoiners who thinks all altcoins are scams. Most of them are, yes, (laughs) scams are at least terrible investments, but we're talking about trading. Trading is different than investing. Bitcoiners listen, you know, listening might already be getting triggered by this, but I'm sure you don't get upset when Tesla stocks goes up 100%. I, I don't. And the key here is looking at crypto as a different asset class than Bitcoin. I look at crypto as if it's like Forex or corporate bonds or junk bonds or penny stocks, very different than the asset that Bitcoin is. And that's where most of the division comes from, is when influencers and investors try to mix Bitcoin and crypto as if it's the same thing. And a lot of people come into the crypto scene through the funnel of trading and making some money. So my hope here is that I can help influence some of these folks towards the fundamental values that Bitcoin can bring without getting toxic and calling scam too easily. And I do think that some Bitcoiners should be talking with crypto folks and helping educate them on why Bitcoin is important and promoting the cypherpunk, libertarian, Austrian economic sound money values that Bitcoin was founded on. So that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, Occasionally you hear one of these episodes. This is one of them. I'll go on other people's podcasts and maybe do some crossovers. But that's uh, that's what this episode is. So with that, here's the episode with Ledger Status. Brad Mills is a partner at X Squared Ventures. All opinions expressed by Brad and his guests do not reflect the opinions of X Squared Ventures or X Squared Management. Investing in cryptocurrencies is high risk and you can get wrecked. Do not treat any opinion expressed on this show as investment advice, but only as an expression of Brad's opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Do not attempt to hodl without doing your research first. Yeah, it's up to you. We can, we can start yours right now, you know, like... Oh, uh, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll see how we'll see how we can mix it in creatively. Yeah, there you I go. actually have I I've hired an editor recently. He he edits for me, Jace Jason Sanderson. Nice. He he does a lot of other people's podcasts, and my friend uh, Jordan Harbinger, who's got a really successful podcast called the Jordan Harbinger Show. I was telling him like, man, I'm editing like 15 hours sometimes an episode, and it's just so much time and yeah. energy going into this and he's like dude you should use my guy <laughs> so i was like well okay yeah Thank i had you. a i had a friend of mine who is just really familiar with audio he did my shows for quite a while um i have a couple of different podcasts and but then i invested in some equipment where i can just kind of live produce it and you know it comes out as it goes in Content that's published is better than no content at all, which is what would happen if I had to spend that much time editing. So, yeah, that's definitely the the lean startup method. That's right. Just so, get it out, 
measure it. If it's working, then you can invest some money into making it different. That's right. So uh, you got started up in uh, Bitcoin a long time ago. When was your uh, in- introduction to the space? My original uh, Bitcoin experience was 2011, May 2011. Maybe it was even April 2011. But it was I was a uh, software. I had a software company where we were developing Facebook games. This nice. was back when you know, like altcoins and DeFi and stuff. It's very cyclical and bubbly and it's it's like um trend, you know, it's a hot trend. You got to get on it. That type of, you know, you got to be quick and follow the next DeFi Andre Cronje launch or something like that <laughs> and get in and, you know, make your money. That's kind of what it was in, in, uh, in 2000, like eight, nine, 10 with Facebook. It was just wild west with, with like anybody could launch a game on Facebook and even on Apple and you could get millions of downloads and millions of players and monetize it with virtual currency and shady ads and SMS scams and mortgage scam ads and all this crazy shit. So there was like a very similar, um, a very similar thing with poker as well. Like poker had a bubble. And Mm -hmm. so it seems like a lot of former game developers like indie game developers a lot of like amazon fulfilled by amazon sellers a lot of poker players and a lot of people have been through several get rich quick schemes yeah yeah it's like anybody that's been trying to be trying to be an entrepreneur or trying to make money quickly somehow on the internet um you found your way to bitcoin eventually (laughs) that's what it seemed like thankfully i find my way there early certainly from the web space i mean i come from the web space too and i was uh, I was learning web development, really like total noob in 2008 from a web development side. But I was, uh, I went full time into into the web around 2011, and so my introduction originally to Bitcoin was back then as well, because you know, like th- through the especially during the hype cycles when Bitcoin went from like two dollars to fifteen dollars, which it did during the cycle you got in, and then. Um, I, my first tweet ever about Bitcoin was right before it broke out of seven dollars after that top. Oh uh, yeah, really? Yeah, in 2012. Uh, right on. I didn't think of it as an investment, so I didn't even consider. Were you trading back then? Yeah, I was trading stocks and stuff, but I didn't think of Bitcoin or even forex really as a thing that I did. I only thought of like you know I buy stocks and sell stocks. Um, yeah. Which is too bad because I was the type of person that you know I'd take a thousand dollars and throw it at Bitcoin and see what happened, and that would have been pretty nice <laughs> at, at seven dollar oh, Bitcoin. Yeah. But I honestly didn't think of it that way. Um, but because well, well, you, you were you were working with WordPress, right? Yeah, and I still I still do. Like a lot of my ecosystem is around the WordPress space, and which prepared me a lot for um, understanding some of the things that would come up with crypto. Because these are also open source software projects with uh, some corporate entities behind them, like a foundation or you know someone that has a for profit business that has an underlying basis of nonprofit software. Uh, network effects. I mean, when I was getting into WordPress, it was 3% of the web and now it's 38% of the web. Um, so seeing what happens and even with substandard software doesn't necessarily matter if it's what's used, if it's kind of the standard. So seeing, for instance, people say, I'm going to make the next Bitcoin because, uh, the code's better. It's like, well, but a lot of people know what Bitcoin is. So if they start looking into, you know, digital currencies or whatever, you know, blockchain, whatever nomenclature they have, 
the market leader is probably going to stay the market leader. Like, so I got an advantage from that perspective with some of that stuff because I saw what happened in the web space, whether it's WordPress or other tools that became dominant. Like, you see it with React now. I don't know if you've kept up with you know development, but the dominant JavaScript frameworks, like the ones that were early and uh, got a lot of market share, they tend to keep that market share. You know what I mean? Yeah, wasn't it like Node.js and now it's React or something like that? Yeah, I mean, and they still have a lot of their you know their places, and I don't want to get too outside of my lane since I'm a lowly you know PHP and MySQL and <laughs> WordPress guy of <laughs> my uh, my JavaScript familiarity is not not perfect, but um, yeah, like Node.js has done a lot of good stuff, but it's usually when you get to like, okay, what about React versus Vue or something, you know, like some alternative, you know, that does something similar, you tend to have one that just completely dominates in the, right. in the long-term sense. I'm so out of the software thing, like I kind of peripherally pay attention to it a little bit here and there, but yeah, I'm not really, like I still have a couple of games even still from back like, oh, that's cool. Going, going on 11 years they still now, get, or 12. They still get installs? Yeah, they still do, and they still like people still pay. Pa- like, I I grew up in poverty, so I was kind of shocked when I, I I actually got into entrepreneurship because I wanted to make a movie. I had written this cheesy '80s horror movie in in uh, school, and awesome. I'm like, I want to make a movie. So I went and started asking people for fifty thousand dollars to make a movie. I'm like this twenty two year old broke kid that's never really <laughs> held a job for more than a year in his life and works at a call center and stuff like that. For yeah. some reason nobody was giving me any money to make a movie. That's Not funny. even the government would give me money. So I got pissed off and I'm like, well I'm gonna make it myself. I'm gonna figure out a way to make it myself. So I Googled how to make money online. And that that's was awesome. literally my my introduction into uh entrepreneurship. So you got in that hype cycle for app development in the well, actually, I got scammed quite a bit for two years before I got into that. Oh, I was yeah. like, got sucked into network marketing businesses, and I was selling these miracle potion pills that would somehow make your gas tank more efficient. And I was like, <laughs> just totally naive on the internet. Eh? Just like, was it online, or were you like yeah, buying it, it online all- and then going door to door? Well, both. It was like I googled how do you make money online, and then and all these people all are stuff. Yeah, they're like advertising paid to read surveys and like network marketing and Ponzi schemes and literal pyramid Ponzi schemes, online Ponzi schemes. So after about two years of getting through that, I decided I was actually going to try to like make my own business rather than working for some like pyramid scheme dressed up like the network marketing, yeah, you know, direct marketing company. Cause I did find one that was really good and that did actually teach me some good uh, like foundational knowledge. Yeah, I mean, they know how to do marketing and SEO and some of those things. I mean, it's not that you can't learn from it, it's just they're scummy along the way. Um, yeah. So yeah and most of the up- products suck. Most of the yeah. products are just <laughs> empty, like, like, uh, like that gas pill one. It was just, it was just a, a placebo effect. There was nothing really in it, but they were doing conference calls and tens of thousands of people signed up for this thing, selling their pills all over the place like yeah. going to cab companies and trucking companies selling them the dream of you'll be 30 percent more gas efficient if you put these things in your gas tank yeah. and i discovered that like for that one specifically i was like hey only poor people care about the price of gas so i'm like fishing in the wrong pond here because rich people i talk to 
if I got up the courage to talk to, I talked to a couple of rich people about it and they're like, I don't care about the price of gas. And then all the poor people were like, oh, I really want to save money on gas, but they couldn't afford to buy the pills. Right. So it was just a problem. You need to be able to sell a lot of something to people who the price doesn't matter to them. Um, yeah. And that, that's when I kind of like a little bit later, I developed a strategy of, of like, if I could just get a hundred thousand people to give me $1, I have six <laughs> figures. That was my idea. I was like, I, I just need to get a hundred thousand people to give me a dollar. So you went the other route. That's where you get, it makes sense for the gaming because yeah, that's you're like, when I switched to games. well, tons and tons of people have phones. And even if I only get a small percentage of them to give me a dollar, a dollar is not that expensive for an app. So maybe I can get them to hand it over. To get rid of the ads or whatever your monetizing yeah. strategy was. So did you find out a bit about Bitcoin because you were on forums or like, yeah, I found them. I would see Bitcoin stuff on like Hacker News and stuff, you know, during those hype cycles. And I think that's probably where the majority of my listening or reading about Bitcoin was right. back then. Was yours similar or was it through one of the businesses that you were you trying know, to start? It was actually that. I, you know, like I, I told you, I came from a, I grew up in like government housing and stuff like that. I've moved around to like five, six, seven different schools. And like my parents divorced when I was really young and just never had money. We didn't, I didn't grow up around money. My mom would go in debt every Christmas to try to give us a really nice Christmas and she would overdo it. She'd like fill the Christmas tree up. So it was amazing. But then she'd be in debt for the rest of the year trying to pay off her high interest credit card. Yeah. So just didn't have good financial IQ in my, in like examples around me of like, Oh, well you should, you should save and you should invest and like things like that. Yeah. So I never, I never grew up with that uh, training and school doesn't teach you any of that stuff. So it was actually like when Ron Paul started to run for president in 2008 and somebody had sent me this video that uh, he was in, uh, he was in this documentary called America freedom for fascism mm-hmm. f- from freedom to fascism. And it was all about taxes and central banking and money. And that's when I learned about fractional reserve banking. And I was like right in the middle of my entrepreneurial journey there. And I was making good money. I had gone from being super poor to like generating seven figures in one year with this game company and just being totally blown away. I had a million people basically give me a dollar. It wasn't just a hundred thousand. I was totally blown away. And but then it was like I got stopped on my tracks because I realized that money is a big scam. So not only was I being scammed from all these how to how to make money online Google searches I was doing and falling for all these Ponzi scams, but I realized my entire life I'd been falling for a Ponzi scam. Money itself was a Ponzi scam. And that really sent me down the rabbit hole. I was like going to Alex Jones videos and all this <laughs> shit, just trying to find information. And I, was, I got so unproductive and my business started to suffer. But I had all this money now and, and, you know, I had a partner, two partners I was splitting everything with, but the stuff was pretty much on autopilot. But now I had this money and I was like, the, the stock market is going to crash and dollars are going to fail. Like I need to get out of dollars and I need to start learning about money and what can I do to protect myself? Should I buy real estate? Should I buy stocks? Should I, whatever. And, uh, you know, like the conspiracy people will Google like, you know, what do I do with money and how do I buy stocks or is the stock market going to crash? And, you know, there's all these people that are peddling this like apocalyptic newsletter stuff about everything's going to go to shit and you should buy these stocks. (laughs) Yeah. As if, as if that's what's going to, what's going to save you. So 
that that was my experience of coming into Bitcoin was learning about. So you fell down the societal system. Armageddon rabbit hole. Well, it was more so like I I fell down the hard money maximalism rabbit hole when when I found Ron Paul in that documentary. He he had a sign on his desk that said, "Don't steal. The government hates competition." And I'm like, "Whoa, who's this guy? He's like a congressman in the government that <laughs> yeah. agrees." With with this narrative, agrees with this logic that, that the money's a big scam. And then I started like just listening to Ron Paul videos and thankfully got out of the Alex Jones rabbit hole pretty quickly because it was like I couldn't afford any more dried canned meat and Berkeley <laughs> water filters or anything. Is that what he sells on his e-commerce stores? <laughs> oh, yeah, all that stuff, you know, lots of stuff. Survivalist stuff. <clears throat> but that it introduced me to gold because it was it was the you know the, all those guys all those prepper yeah, guys and, go to and all that gold backed currencies most yeah, of them so ever since we left gold backed currencies that's when everything went fully downhill so that I guess that led the way for you know Bitcoin and other stuff um, the event like people saw the pathway to digital monetary systems back in the web of the 90s it was just not until bitcoin came along that it was um able to be figured out in a trustless manner but if you look at the mm. satoshi's white paper has tons of um notations and you know references to prior prior works right so the idea had been there for quite some time and most of that that was digital someone was onto that pre pre bitcoin so you were uh i guess early enough to be there when Bitcoin was young, but late enough to where this as a as some kind of underground movement was well underway, I guess, huh? Yeah, it was, you know, I had actually been into, um, have, have you heard of eGold before? Yeah. So I was a customer of eGold. There's okay. not many Bitcoiners that are actually former customers of eGold. Yeah. eGold was like the first electronic digital currency backed by gold. And I was using it when I first was Googling how to make money and all this, and I was kind of going down the, the entrepreneurial rabbit hole, getting scammed a lot. Um, but yeah, I was using eGold because a bunch of these sites were using eGold. And then I started actually using eGold as a payment processor myself because I thought, wow, this is actually pretty cool. Like you can use gold on the internet. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I think I was my, you know, it was like 400 bucks an ounce or something like that at the time when I was mm-hmm. using eGold. And then a couple of years later, um, the government shut down eGold and I just lost all the eGold that I had, all the gold I had in the vault. Oh, really? And yeah, because the government shut them down and you had to go through this complicated process to claim your 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 uh, ounces or your... I didn't have a lot. Like I was maybe a few thousand dollars or something. Yeah. But that would be worth a bit more today. But it just showed me there that like, wow, the government does not like competition. It was around the same time the Liberty Dollar was shut down too. Um. And it just, yeah, it showed me, like, gold is what you should get. You shouldn't get paper gold, ETFs, or need to hold it in your hands. Yeah, you got to get gold that they can't take because, first, if it's like challenging the dollar or dollar hegemony, they call it, then mm-hmm. it's going, it's likely to be shut down by the government. And uh, do you continue to think Bitcoin be, is at risk of those things today? I mean, because if anything, not really. No, not really. Is it just, why not? Is it because Bitcoin it can't be like made illegal by every country simultaneously? So essentially, you're giving an edge to people of other countries. Or what's your what's your game theory behind why 
Well, I don't think that it will because I feel like it's a bit too late for that. Like, I feel like they could have done that maybe 2014 or something like that when Mt. Gox went under and they got Silk Road and all that stuff. I feel like they could have maybe then, but now Bitcoin is just too big. And for one, like, there's a few things, really. One, politicians are starting to own gold, I mean Bitcoin. So when you've got them owning Bitcoin, then they're they're more likely to make financial and political and legal decisions and policy decisions that benefit themselves because most politicians are selfish, manipulating pricks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if there's any politicians listening. No argument but like, for me. You think about it, right? Like their career path is to just manipulate people. Like who can I manipulate or the if, most? If they don't <laughs> own it, like I bet if they come out with some policy that's anti-Bitcoin or something, they're kids or their grandkids or something or they're going to call them and be like hey you're on the wrong side yeah of this. Like, that was the other thing like john carlo was the uh the president i think it was the yeah. cftc yeah wasn't it his daughter that told him yeah. he needs to pay attention to bitcoin yeah his daughter because they were talking about it in uh at the cftc and then one day you got like a text from his daughter and he was like hey my bitcoin's up and he realized like why am why am my, why is my generation trying to control what the next generation's of money and finance decisions should be like we should embrace this not hamper them from being able to make decisions and you know have the have the choice to use what types of money and technology that they want to make yeah so it's great that we have people with logic not all politicians are bad but it's a career that attracts people who want to manipulate and the best manipulators rise to the top so it's like If there's a financial decision, if there's a financial incentive, they will usually make the decision based on that. And if they ban Bitcoin, then other countries, like you said, they'll have a a game theoretical advantage over over, um, the U.S. And then there's already a lot of acceptance of Bitcoin in other countries like Japan. It's legal money in Japan and um, Liechtenstein and those countries around there, like they're pretty progressive with, when it comes to their policies and their uh, their views towards banking with, with Bitcoin. But then, secondly, you got Wyoming right now, which is really pro Bitcoin, and they just passed the the cryptocurrency banking charter or whatever. And mm-hmm. Caitlin Long and Avanti Bank now is like a chartered bank, and they'll have like a real Federal Reserve account, so they'll be able to. I custody feel, Bitcoin. I feel like New York versus Wyoming and how they've approached Bitcoin is like a microcosm of what would happen between nation states. Like if the U.S. was the version of New York of strict and here's all the regulation and here's the way we're going to hamper and make this more difficult, you'd have co- you know country equivalents like Wyoming, a small state, but a smaller country that's like, hey, we'll be your home base for this stuff. This is great. Like we want to pull yeah, it's in competitive. business. Yeah, it's like it's gives like, us a leg up. Freedom versus tyranny, but making control. A, but making a bet that people will flock to them due to a more open nature and a willingness yeah. to allow people to experiment without being terrified that you're going to go to jail or something because you, you know, <laughs> bought and sold or took investment or whatever mm-hmm. you whatever you do related to related to crypto, which is all very scary for. An Amer- I mean, you're Canadian. I'm American. I think you know both have pretty regulated. Um, financial systems where 
you could be breaking the rules hardly knowing that you're doing so, you know? Oh, yeah. And and it's like you never know when they may turn on Bitcoin. There's not a chance that they won't turn on Bitcoin and try to make it illegal. Like if Bitcoin does start to. I mean, it is already started. It's it's already started. Bitcoin is already sucking in micro strategy and uh, large funds and stuff are starting to allocate family offices have been for a little while i think we're going to start seeing more sovereign wealth funds allocate to bitcoin yeah and you start seeing these these like large investors sophisticated investors start to think about bitcoin as like michael saylor said recently in in an interview the ceo of microstrategies he said um you, you think about it like regular people think about it as hodling but institutions think about it as adopting bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset yeah and that's a big thing when they start to look at bitcoin as gold or just an asset class that they need to be allocated to and then you know that might if that trend continues with the same trend that we're seeing now with massive uncapped spending in the dollar and not just the u.s dollar but currencies all over the world they would need to have a coordinated global agreement to crack down on Bitcoin in order for it to work because the currency wars have been raging for 10, 15 years now, and it's very precarious right now. I mean, yeah. well, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an uncharted territory right now. We, we don't know there's what new, would happen. There's a lot of new, uh, you know, like modern monetary theory type of stuff. I mean, that's put a name to something that's existed for a while, but um, there's a more acceptance of saying, hey, well, we make our money and our debt is denominated on our money. So we're just going to uh, take that debt and, and take it away. And Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the constitutional argument. That's the people that like Ron Paul and the libertarians and the, and the hard money Austrian economics people have been, have been saying that from a different perspective for a long time. They've been <laughs> saying, saying that that's bad and modern monetary. No, no, that, not necessarily. I, I think of it like in the middle i think of it like modern monetary theory is is a a smart way to take control of printing of money but in a fiscally responsible way the the people that are trying to push modern monetary theory are like socialists and and like really left leaning um non-financially responsible people that are just like let's do the green new deal and spend tens of trillions and hundreds of trillions of dollars on every all these infrastructure projects and just no cap on what they think they can spend. Let's give UBI to everybody. Let's forgive all student loan debt. Let's blah, well, I think, blah, blah. So I think what what encourages some of that is when, well, one, when we um, talk as if inflation has not existed, even though the dollar doesn't go as far as it did before. So that's kind of inherently inflation, even if it doesn't show up in their basket of goods or however they're denominating Inflation oh, and that's fed. all BS. It does show up. Like they, they it shows remove, up in healthcare costs and education. Yeah, they costs. remove all. They remove all the ones that are like inflated the most from the inflation calculations and say, "Oh, there's no inflation." Yeah, but like, you ask anybody like, who's <laughs> buying things over ten years, like obviously the prices of everything have gone up except for a Coke and like a, a, yeah, a bar, a gallon of milk, and a loaf of bread, and a pound of sugar. Those things you add them up, sure, inflation's under two percent. But but you, even that, like the doubling of education costs, though, and the the doubling of Medicare or like medical costs every seven years or that's whatever. bad. That's worse. But even milk and bread has gone up 
really more than the inflation rate. Like it's gone up. It's gone up in a way that you notice it. If you go back and think about what you paid for a gallon of milk 10 years ago and what you pay for a gallon of milk now, it's probably like nearly doubled. Yeah, I'm hesitant to pull a George H.W. Bush here. Do you remember that when he was running for president? Somebody asked him, like, what's the gallon of milk cost? And he was like, Ugh. but he was trying to he's trying to pass him off as a pass himself off as an, an everyday person. Um, but yeah, well, there was there were there, the perfect um, like example of how it's it's so creeping and you don't notice it is being in the stock market since the 70s. And it was like if you had invested uh, in the stock market in the 70s and kept it in the S&P 500, you'd be up like 32x or something crazy like that if you held it for 50 years till now, right? Yeah. But when you adjust for inflation and the drop in the cost of the purchasing power, that's the main thing. When you adjust for the drop in the purchasing power, not just inflation, because the drop in the purchasing power is the is the real invisible tax that really affects everybody that's saving or has assets. Right. And when you adjust for that, it's like you're up maybe like 3x or something, like you got an average of 4 to 5% gains a year in purchasing power. So the cap the low inflation capitalist argument is going to be that if you um if you have a kind of controlled level of inflation, let's say 1%, 2% a year or something like that, whatever your, your mandate or your target is from a central bank, then by, in, by having that, you're encouraging people to put money to work. Uh, you're encouraging people to in, build a business like you did or to invest it in equity like they do in the stock market or um, essentially not to hoard it, that creates economic activity, create, increases the productivity of a nation, and establishes a positive growth curve moving forward. Um, people who are um, more in favor of you know scarce assets or disinflationary assets, whether it be gold or, or Bitcoin or whatever, like Sometimes that can encourage us to not spend it, right? Like, and I, this is kind of what I wanted to get into with you. Is like, right? Okay, let's say maybe a hundred Bitcoin was not that expensive a, a long time ago, but then it just gets more and more expensive. And the more expensive right. it gets, the less and less you want to spend any of those those Bitcoin. You know, so it's like, whoa! Now I got a hundred Bitcoin, but they're twenty thousand dollars. I had uh, yeah. hundred Bitcoin, and they were. Two hundred dollars. <laughs> so it's like it's uh, yeah, that, it's that, not encouraging you to spend those funds, and it's therefore preventing you from participating in the economy. That's kind of that that capitalist argument, right? Well, I would say that's more a Keynesian argument versus a capitalist argument. There's there's the Keynesian the two main schools of thought, or the Keynesian school of thought, which is the spend into the economy and stimulate growth via right. spending and um, then there's the Austrian school of thought, which is that the money, you got to think about sound money first. And if the money is sound and then people can save their money and be fiscally kind of responsible, personally responsible with their money, they will spend how they see fit. And then they will, if the money is not, uh, being def- um, devalued, then you're not in a rush to spend it. So yeah, there will be less like reckless spending into the economy, but there'll be more responsible and reason reasonable spending because your money is worth something. So the capitalists versus 
whatever, I guess, socialist side of that is you can be capitalist in a Keynesian or you can be capitalist and an Austrian. Yeah. It's just more about when you think about it from the picture, from the way I understand it anyways, is when you think about it like longer terms or just longer time frames, what does it lead to? Well, it leads to what we see now. Yeah, Keynesian is a better way to describe what I was talking about for sure. But my okay, so my question from for an Austrian economist type of thinker is the idea that you can essentially reduce the um, the volatility of a market cycle, and that like this Keynesian idea essentially creates bubbles and bursting of bubbles, and yes. does an Austrian system and the Austrian idea. Is it meant to it to reduce essentially the height and the depth of those of those bubbles? Well, really, what it is about is about not enforcing central planning and redistribution of wealth, because so allow the market to play out on its own. Yeah, the free market should be the be setting the the interest rates. So, like the bubbles are inflated by the central banks and by the Federal Reserve right now because they've artificially lowered the interest rate. So if a bank wants to borrow $100 billion or something like that, they have to actually make those risk calculations. If the interest rate is 4%, like it was a long time ago, they're actually ha- they actually have to think harder about, well, do we need this $100 billion or should we just be more responsible and we don't need the $100, million, $100 billion? So when the when the, uh, the the central bankers and you know the economists and the chairman of the federal reserve will will go out there and say like they're they're targeting x inflation rate they're saying we know better than the the hive mind in the in the market which has obviously been proven to be not true like they can't know better than the free market because look at the situation we're in now the only thing they can do is continue to print and print and print and keep the interest rates lower lower and by doing that they're forcing banks and pension plans and all these things to take on more risk, take on more money, which means they have to keep the interest rates lower. So it's just this like cycle of creating more money to keep pumping into the economy so that everything doesn't fall apart. And they tried to raise the interest rates last year. Do you remember when the market started to shutter last year when they yeah. tried raising the interest rates? Yeah, the market didn't like that at all. No, everything shit the bed and like the Federal Reserve had to start opening up the overnight repo window and like loaning out hundreds of billions of dollars to these banks again because the banks were stopping lending to each other because they were like, well, we need our capital reserves to cover all these these debts we owe. Yeah, and so it's funny. Even without the central bank invest or like central bank manipulations and things like that, the idea of a um a growing economy and a positive cycle and a bubble and those things have existed for a long time even when uh you know money was backed or like the idea it was a bank note because it was literally you know from a bank it wasn't even a centralized currency and you know most stuff was based on some kind of firm assets um mm-hmm. and there were still people that were in debt and things like that i don't know if you you know the term of like jubilee right like the ancient jubilee the debt jubilee yeah, yeah the debt jubilee <laughs> of forgiving debt every 50 years or 100 years in the ancient yeah the um, ritual Jew- of like tradition. forgiving debt it's, that's great 
I like the idea of a death jubilee. I think that that's modern. Be. Is that modern monetary theory? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it is, and it it <laughs> makes sense. Like it does make sense that these these like people that have been preyed on from when they were like not financially responsible, like eighteen year olds in college. Like, can you think of yourself when you were an eighteen year old college kid? Like, what were you thinking about? Just you know, partying and like buying drugs or buying like movies or games or buying a PlayStation five or whatever it was. You're like, yeah, I'll get a loan for 20 grand and, you know, take, I a, take a student uh, loan. I'm real weird, but I might've been the most fiscally responsible when I was <laughs> 18. Nice. Um, most kids aren't. Most yeah. kids are like, not, not only is college ob- obscenely expensive, but most kids, when they're that young, shouldn't be making the financial decision to take on such lifelong debt. Yeah. So, so they're like preyed on from when they're when they're irresponsible to make the decision to take on that debt, and then they get into the cycle, and they were like banks hook you into credit. You got to put everything on a credit card. Yeah, honestly, the very structure of a credit score is kind of. Uh, obnoxious to me. Like I was, uh, I'm not a strict follower, but I don't know if you know, like Dave Ramsey and the way he's promoted. I've heard, yeah, handling yeah, heard. handling debt and kind of this cat. the The perfect credit score is zero uh, because, <laughs> because you know the credit system encourages you to take on debt, but then manage it well. Uh, that's how you get a high credit score. Whereas if you're going to be fiscally well off, you could have a credit score of zero because you don't take debt right you pay with things that was my mission when i started learning about gold and fiat money and central banking and fractional reserve banking when i started learning about fractional reserve banking that blew my mind i'm like okay so none of the money in the bank account is real how is that possible (laughs) like not only is it not backed by gold but it's not even there like the money that i put in my bank account it's not real money it's just and most, most Americans, most Americans or most people in modern economies don't know anything about the way reserves work. They think if everyone in the world goes to the bank and says, give me my account balance yeah. in cash, that they can get it, but you can't. Um, Money is just an illusion, really. Like the F- FDIC is only 1% funded. There's only $150 billion in the FDIC yeah, insurance most, fund. Well, most money is created privately. Right, like mo- money is created through uh, through debt, through loans. If I go take a hundred thousand dollar loan out to build my software business, they don't have to give me. You know, they don't have to have a hundred thousand dollars to loan it to me. It's terms that yeah. Are, it's like it's, it used to be when fractional reserve banking was even somewhat sane. It used to be ten percent. Like they'd have to have a yeah, capital col- reserve of ten percent more collateral. Like now it's now it's zero percent. Do you believe that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh it's, like the CARES <laughs> Act during the COVID crash. They wrote it down to zero percent. There's zero. The Basel Accords don't even apply anymore. They got rid of them because, and they're trying to say there's not a banking crisis. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Why would they put the Why would they put the capital reserve requirements and the liquidity reserve requirements to zero and hold these closed door meetings that aren't even available? Like they don't even have to keep minutes on who they're giving money to the Federal Reserve. 
in these men, in these behind closed doors meetings. They can be giving hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollars to corporations and banks and stuff without any record. And you'll never be able to get it with a freedom of information request because they passed something in the CARES Act that allowed them to have closed door meetings where they can't keep minutes and nobody yeah. can audit the Federal Reserve. So we have no idea of how much money they're spending. We don't even know how much money there is in existence. That's how ridiculous this is. <laughs> we don't even know how much money exists. Yeah, I mean, it was, so why not do MMT, right? Like, why not do a debt jubilee? Well, None of it matters anyway. It's do, all illusion. I do think that you start to run into that is once you go down the path of um, forgiving everything and saying, "Hey, we just we just disappeared this debt." <laughs> um, people start you know, asking, "Well, why do I pay sh- taxes? Why you do shatter I- reality and you shatter their ability to control?" The, the, the citizens through taxation that is that is it like for sure <laughs> but i don't know that that's a positive society like when you go down that road right like i think <laughs> of course not but it's reality <laughs> because it really doesn't you don't need to be taxed so much you, you, like i think i saw it was uh the stat was something like if you taxed every 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 billionaire in the united states if you put up all their wealth it's something like 250 billionaires or something like that it's like 2.5 trillion dollars that they all own if you tax them 100% of what they own you'd be able to run the government for like 8 weeks <laughs> so you could have a 100% tax rate and still not run the government well what so, of those yeah i guess of those richest richest people <laughs> and they own most of the money so like they're the ones that matter um, in terms of taxation, right? Like you'll get a lot of modern monetary theory and like lefties and stuff like that, like that are maybe progressives and stuff. And listen, I agree with a lot of this stuff. I think if I was to have to make the choice between Keynesian economics or Austrian economics or modern monetary theory for running a government in today's day and age, I don't really want to be seeing looting and rioting in the streets and total anarchy and chaos. So I would opt with UBI and debt forgiveness and all that stuff. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. There's people suffering. There's, there's so many people suffering from high debt and medical bills that they'll never be able to get out of. You can't even discharge your student loan debt in a bankruptcy anymore. They're so corrupt yeah. that, they, that they made it so you can't even discharge your student loan debt in a bankruptcy. There's a trillion, over a trillion dollars in car loan debt, over a trillion dollars in credit card debt, over a trillion dollars in student loan debt. It's nuts. The money just doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. And yeah, modern monetary theory, UBI, it would be great. But who's going who's gonna to make the, the decisions? It's, it's like I think we're on a, I, th- I mean, I honestly think it, at least the, st- the U.S. and others will probably follow. They're more and more onto that as we go along. I mean, that's one of the only bipartisan issues that's existed in the last year through COVID stuff is modern modern monetary theory. Essentially, like I mean, whether you want to call it that or not, but yeah, bailouts, like bailouts, tax cuts. Uh, but it's no different loans. though. It's no different than anything else that we've seen from 2008 to the stock market collapse to like LTCM collapse in 2000. Like it's all these like quants that are creating these insane derivative yeah. bubbles so i like that- i like to consider myself a pragmatist i guess um like I, I like to think of things what what would happen in these idyllic scenarios of following this theory or that theory economically but right. we live in a real world where we're just like okay well this is what actually happened and this is what we did um i've read some interesting stories about what could have happened if we were more 
if we were more restrictive, if we let the big banks fail in 2008, yeah. for example. Oh, like, it would have been like, a depression. Yeah, and that's, and that's what I get to. Is but like we'd if you probably go, be out of it by now. We'd probably be done, <laughs> and it would be like from now forward we'd be responsible and we wouldn't have – to face an even bigger depression. But so in, in this kind of, whether it's an Austrian mindset or whatever the mindset is, you want to call it, where you kind of let these cycles happen more naturally, yeah. where the recoveries don't like bounce up because of the way, you know, people, manipulators got involved from a central bank level or governmental level. The path out is a long road that is very difficult. You know, people are going to, generationally suffer um and so obviously our governments have decided essentially well if we can bounce out quicker by um interfering to a greater degree then it's going to be better for society and it seems like the bear case on that is in the long run you're going to create one that's so big and so bad that it's not going to like you know we're i don't hit, think we're man gonna, i i think know. generationally we said like yeah. i think now it's going to be generally like, generation no that's what like, i'm saying if you do if you if you try to if you try to uh, sneak your way out of it with all, you know, on those smaller, print your way out, yeah, yeah, on those smaller cycles, through whatever manipulations that you you have on the economy, that eventually you got to pay the pauper no matter what. Um, and the debate seems to be whether that's true or not. Like, <laughs> you know, like put it to the test: Do we actually ever have to pay the pauper if if the the ledger is made by us? So we just determine. Here you go. We're a productive yeah. society. We can make enough food. We can put people, um, you know, dinner on the table and every every person in the world, if we really want to, we just, you know, we have that productive capability. It's just whether all the numbers align. So mm -hmm. we're, it seems to be that there are people and, and, and governments willing to put that to the test of how can we kind of force it to be the way that we want. I don't know. Like what government can you think about that is putting that to the test? I don't think there's one right now. No, I don't – I mean, I, it seems like some people are willing to take that – to consider that experiment though, don't you think? Of of uh, fiscal responsibility and like flushing out the risk and letting the risk kind of the I've, toxicity in the system flush out and letting banks fail and businesses fail and stuff? No, I think that's what they're not willing to do. I think they're right. willing to do the opposite. Yeah. They're willing to say like we're just going to re redo all the numbers, you know? Like <laughs> there's – Yes, it ends up except being – Except that's the, that's what they're telling us. That's what they're selling us. Like Stephanie Kelton, Professor Stephanie right. Kelton is one of the ones, you know, she was an economic advisor to Bernie Sanders, and she was. And I'll a big put a couple. I'll put NMT. a couple links to interviews with her because they're. I mean, they're very interesting from a, her train of thought. Yeah, but it it comes down to this idealism that ushers in authoritarianism, and we've seen how the communists socialist experiment works out on a grand scale many times and we always we we've got history books to go back and look and see that every time a government tries to expand the balance sheet with fiat money to print for war or running the government or whatever it is expansion like it ends poorly the only monies that have survived throughout history have been backed by gold and gold itself and like you said earlier that you know Bitcoin or gold was in the in the you know the the early days of the United States formation everything it actually wasn't always gold like a lot of money people like people that are interested in money trading stocks bitcoin gold all that stuff we just kind of have this view that like things were used to be like the money used to be backed by gold 
And then we went off the gold standard and then now it's just printing like crazy. But it's, uh, it's more interesting than that, actually. There was periods of time when the U.S. was on a gold standard and off a gold standard. And like during the Civil War, there was a period where the U.S. got went off the gold standard temporarily. Like the greenback was a fiat yeah. currency that, yeah. that Lincoln violated the Constitution and printed a fiat currency because he was trying to win the war. And if I remember the, correctly, even when Germany um, – when they abandoned their currency, finally, I think they temporarily switched to like a land-backed currency or something. Oh, like that. interesting! I didn't know that one. Yeah. So there, there's obviously been a lot of experiments with this stuff over time, but in the end, as as I don't know what you call us in this scenario, we're people trying to preserve our buying power. Perhaps um, we're we're trying to protect ourselves and our families from the risks of any particular currency. Right. That's one of the big reasons why you may get into gold or Bitcoin or anything like that, or, or even build a business or set aside savings as you're getting outside of the, um, you know, being reliant on the, <laughs> whatever's in front of you, you know, from your nine to five or from the government or whatever else. Um, yeah. And in a hard money system that has backing, right. Where, where there's constraints put on the people that are in the government. Cause in the end, they're just supposed to be people that are elected by us, right? Like we're supposed to be able to, hold them accountable. But obviously the trend has gone way away from that. And if there was a, a restriction with a backing on the money, then that would be an inherent fundamental restriction on unchecked power and redistribution of wealth and concentration of wealth. It's, it, would, it would allow for less, um, less bad spending and less in unfairness in the system because they can't just they can't just print money and give it to the, their friends and their banking buddies and all that stuff. None of the people at the Federal Reserve are elected. You you know you have to have the, the the president can nominate the chair, but of the Federal Reserve. But the president, sorry, the president can pick the chair of the Federal Reserve Bank, but it has to be nominated from one of the twelve central bank heads. So the president doesn't – like the people have no say in who's leading the central bank because it's a private corporation. It's the Federal Reserve and the 12-member banks. So the people don't elect the heads of the 12-member banks. They're, they choose someone and then the president chooses who's the leader. It's like who cares? Like they're all insider elite bankers. Yeah. They're all the 0.1% money printer people that are that are like – printing this money and giving it to the top. So the Federal Reserve is actually directly directly affecting wealth inequality since 1971. Productive capacity has like mooned like you were saying earlier, but the average worker's pay has stayed pretty much stagnant, barely kept up with inflation. Not to mention and the that, divergence between the average CEO pay and the average corporate pay under them. It's like yeah, well, it, I think it used to be maybe like eleven to one, um, and then it went to like eighty to one, and then a hundred something to one. So your your typical that, CEO is making hundreds of times more than the person average person yeah. works for them. And that gets that gives capitalism a bad rap. People start to see they see all this stuff and they say, oh well, the, then it's capitalism is the problem, and it's not capitalism because we're not in a capitalist society right now. We're in a cronyist central bank elite printing society it's it's counterfeit capitalism because the fact is that the the 
the total national debt and the total supply of money is growing almost exponentially now. And all of that spending power goes to the people at the top of the funnel. And that's banks and funds and their friends and, and, and cor- big mega corporations that have relationships with the government, military contracting, drug companies, all of these like people that can afford to lobby the government and, and pay off all the politicians. They get the benefit of that spending power right now. That's not capitalism. Free market capitalism, which is like what the Austrian economy philosophy wants to see come back into the world, it wouldn't be like that. It wouldn't be, there would be no printing of money so that there would be no inequality. And, you know, the Gini coefficient is getting worse in the United States because of the Federal Reserve and because of money printing. What's interesting is a lot of people would say, like, they would give essentially the same argument to. Um, the alternatives, right? They'd say, but that, why MMT is better? Uh, well, it's, it's complicated between like comparing MMT versus um, just like more of a, a strict uh, financial view of things. Um, basically, that equity of of debt and or the and the the equity of the wealth distribution, right? Um, mm-hmm. both sides are going to say, well, we're, we're trying to support all people, not just rich people or whatever else. Um, but I, I, I am certain, I am sympathetic to your arguments in terms of who that leaves behind. And in either capacity, we've seen the system that's been in place and we see the people who are left behind, which is most people, particularly working class. Oh people. yeah. <laughs> it's most um, people. Yeah. So, but that doesn't mean capitalism is bad, right? That doesn't mean that it's capitalism's fault that the central bank printed six trillion dollars and majority of it went to the corporations that were that were buying back their stocks with all their money and took on excess risk at zero percent interest rates because the central bankers artificially kept them low to encourage this kind of like abhorrent activity like stock buybacks adds nothing valuable to society it was actually illegal for a long time, and it should still be illegal to do this level of stock buybacks. I think it was Boeing bought back like ninety six percent of its like the ninety six percent of its gains in its share was due to spending all of its money in stock buybacks, and that does not add anything valuable to society. They're not doing any kind of research and development. They're not doing anything good for the world. What are it's they doing? Their planes it, are falling out of the sky. Funneling to shareholders, and then also making it much more difficult to bail themselves out in the scenario. Yeah. And they're getting the money. They're getting the money from central bank printing. Like they get a spigot of, of basically risk-free money from pension plans and from taxpayers and with pension funds going, the pension funds put it into their, through like direct index investing is kind of the way. you're. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all these pension funds have to, hit these percentage target gains. So, I mean, it is a big mess because that's where the modern monetary theorists don't understand. And like people like Bernie Sanders and Stephanie Kelton, it doesn't matter if it's modern monetary theory or if it's Keynesian economics or, or what it's going to blow up because (laughs) how, how does it make any sense that if you, okay, if you take over the central bank with the politicians, right. And you start doing things like UBI and bailing out uh, the citizens, then how does the stock market not crash? If you start to regulate 
like ban stock buybacks, which should be done. You should not be able to do stock buybacks to that level. You should be able to do them to like maybe a certain percentage, but not to the level or hold them accountable on the flip side of that. Right. Um, yeah, certainly if the same people doing buybacks are then the ones requesting bailouts, there should be accountability there. Um, and I know that came to a head a little bit in March and April. And I think Boeing, as an example, ended up not wanting to take bailouts, probably because of the sticky conversations it would create. No, I'm pretty sure that Boeing and all those guys begged for bailouts and they got most of it. Most of the money that was printed was, went to corporations and and the people that are already extremely rich, like the banks. It was like maybe 5% of it or something like that went to people. And then, well, I guess maybe it depends on how that was achieved. Because, I mean, some of it was the Fed just outright went and started investing in high yield, like uh, bond instruments, right? So that it ended up uh, putting a floor on some of those um, on some of those companies' bonds anyway. So whether they wanted a bailout or not, they were essentially being shored up by the Fed participating in those high yeah. high yield bond environments. And direct direct printing of money into the banks via the repo markets, which is just a way to give banks more money, base money, which then they can deposit into the banking system. And through the fractional reserve magic system, they can create like 10x leverage on that cash. Like if you put $100 billion in cash into a, a, a base money into a bank account, they can loan that out. And then that via fractional reserve can rise to a trillion dollars through the economy through fractional reserving so like there's like six trillion at least has been printed this year alone and that's not going to regular people like what did everybody in the united states get like a 1200 bucks or something like that uh yeah i was thinking it was 1200 per adult under a hundred thousand in income something like that um anyway yeah yeah i mean <laughs> There's a lot so, of flaws so, in the system. So, I'd like so to- the UBI, the UBI is smart, but like just to wrap up the thought there, like the the Austrian economic people are saying, like we got to be more you go back to sound money. In a way, the Austrians don't like the idea of central bankers and private corporate shareholders dictating the money of the country, and they think it should be taken back into control of the power of the people. But they don't think that it should be able to be printed so willy-nilly by these people who aren't representing everybody. So what I'd like to back this up to is the back to the Bitcoin side of things is when you were getting into Bitcoin, were you looking at it both as a speculator and as someone worried about this kind of hardness of money or by preservation of buying power or how did you approach it back then? Well, back then I was really concerned because it was right right, or right after 2008 and right. after the stock market collapsed and there was a lot of information I was reading that was like Armageddon stuff. It was like we're going to we're going to go into a depression and all this and I was like terrified the banks were going to fail and I was going to lose all my money I just made with my business. So I started looking into gold and silver. I bought silver at the top. It was like 40 bucks. It had just been mooning over the last little while. So I was like, I got to get myself some silver and diversify <laughs> out of this crazy fiat money. I can't believe the way that this works. So I I got a guy um, who's on YouTube, Da Vinci Jeremy, I think his name was on YouTube. And he was like a Canadian dude who was buying gold and silver. And he was 
teaching you how to like import it in so you didn't have to pay tax on it because they'll charge you import taxes of 15% on your on your bullion but there's a tax code you can write on the envelope that allows you to bypass that because it's not supposed <laughs> to be taxed so I was like how do I get this in without paying 15% taxes and then I stumbled upon a video of his that was like oh and by the way there's this new bitcoin thing that's like digital gold and it's only five dollars for a coin right now so you should get some of these too and he was so excited about it that he was giving people a guarantee he was like insuring people all the way down to a dollar he's like if this i'll i'll guarantee your money i'm so excited about this just buy it i'll guarantee your purchase just buy some and if it goes to a dollar i'll refund you (laughs) like the guy was amazing that's awesome yeah it was he was great i guess he never had to be put to the test on that no, he didn't. He didn't. It never went below a dollar. It went to two, I think. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you look to... back on Bitcoin, the volatility w- was only crazier the farther back you go. I mean, the swings. I was looking up when you the, whatever year you said you got in, and it was like $2 to $17 was the range of that cycle before it dropped another 60 70%, something like that. And so it was super volatile back then. Oh, so. it was crazy. Yeah, it was like when I when I first heard about it, it was five dollars when it was in his video, and then I by the time I got my exchange account set up, it was Mt. Gox. Actually, it was Trade Hill was the first one that I that I used to get in. I got in. I got my documents approved and everything. Maybe like three weeks, but I also had started mining with my computer, my gaming computer, because yeah. I'm a gamer. So I started mining the Bitcoin, and I'm like, oh man, this is like awesome because i was doing digital currency with the facebook games so i really was gro- going like into learning about economies and like so you're already you're already interested in this idea of using digital currency in apps or games or just on the like internet that. in yeah. general like i had experiment with e-gold and stuff so i had seen the value of a hard money and an electronic version of it i had seen that people will just spend thousands of dollars a month on digital currency that has no value whatsoever in facebook games and I just saw Bitcoin and I was like a big, huge BitTorrent fan. And after learning about hard money and, and like the way that fiat money is just continually being debased, n- negative, you're purchasing power over 100 years and fiat money is down like 96% or something. So it made perfect sense to me at the time as a gamer, as like an early yeah, so adopter you're, of stuff. You were really like the perfect storm of like a person of interest from the financial yeah, perspective, really, the nerd, yeah. the nerd perspective, yeah. <laughs> like you kind of had it all. Um, so I was looking at it at, at, as a way to, um, I was just excited by Bitcoin. I was excited. I was like, wow, free speech money. It can't be, it can't be censored just like BitTorrent. But you weren't, the, you weren't thinking immediately like, Oh, is the, you know, thinking about the moon or I'm going to be a, Bitcoin jillionaire or whatever. Well, like, when I, it's going to go to $10,000 a coin. Like those. Well, I, I, I did think $10,000 a, t- a coin at the time because I was paying attention to people like uh, Trace Mayer and Max Kaiser, and they're really like hyperbolic sometimes. Yeah. And <clears throat> when I saw like people were saying that gold was going to go to like 10000 or 20000 and I was looking at the market cap of gold, and I was like, well, it's already like pretty high already, but like this Bitcoin thing, it's only in like the tens of millions or hundreds of millions of market cap or whatever. This could go to 10000 and become, you know, hundreds of billions easily, and that would still be pretty cheap, especially if, if money's going to be printed and printed and printed. So like, you low-key did like a really incredible valuation of, of Bitcoin's uh, success case there. I, yeah, I just compared Bitcoin to gold and was like, if Bitcoin can become as usable as gold on the internet and like look what happened to paypal and you know if they don't shut it down it's going to be worth a lot of money and i was like writing 
about $10,000 back in like 2012 or something like that. Never really think it's like when I say a million dollars of Bitcoin right now, I think it's possible. I, that's my new target. Like I do think a million dollars of Bitcoin is, is going to happen. But part of me doesn't really think that part of me thinks like that's when hyperinflation happens and money itself loses the value rather than Bitcoin just goes up to that value. So I just think more so in the terms of like the value of Bitcoin is going to keep going up really fast over time and and consistently. But back then in 2011 and 12, I was thinking $10,000, um, but I was a, you know, dummy trying to trade and stuff and i sold like half my bitcoins at 30 because i got in at 10 (laughs) and and i was like it rose like nuts even i went from five i heard about it at five i got in at 10 finally got my stuff all approved was mining some and then i bought a bunch and then i sold half of it at at 30 i'm like oh i'm so smart 30 bucks like i just tripled my or doubled my money or whatever that was yeah i think one of the biggest fallacies new people think is that (laughs) someone that got in forever ago like they just held it never sold a bit of it i'm like how can you be a rational human being and not sell some <laughs> when it goes up yeah and up i and was up not up. a trader i learned a lot of lessons over the last nine years because of losing bitcoins to hacks i lost so i sold half my bitcoin at 30 bucks and then you know i i, I like watched it go down from 30 to like two and then i was like actually i was pretty smart like that was a good i am I'm a, a good trader i'm a genius <laughs> yeah i'm like i'm so smart look what i did that i'm gonna do this again and so I was just got, I learned bad habits of risk management and how to position a trade and stuff like that because I wasn't a trader. I was, I was maybe an investor, but I wasn't a trader, but I, I thought I was a trader. And then that caused my downfall in, in uh, 2013 and 14 when Gox went under. I had most of my remaining Bitcoins in Mount Gox because I thought I was a good trader. I'm like, I can look what I did last time. This is another bubble, another Bitcoin bubble. I'm going to do it again. And, you know, Roger Ver was talking about how all the money was there and he saw the, the, the cold wallet and don't worry, it's just banking problems. So I trusted the insiders. That's another fallacy with Bitcoin that, you know, don't trust verify is the motto for Bitcoin for a reason. Like, don't trust the insiders. Bitcoin was created so that you do not have to trust anybody. You can verify. So I trusted Roger and I I had bad decisions and I was like betting too much and not thinking about the exchanges going under and counterparty risk and all these things. And I lost again, most of my Bitcoin in, in Gox. And then I started mining again. Cause I'm like, I got to get my stack back. Cause I was <laughs> yeah. like, Bitcoin's going to 10,000 someday. I know it. I can't be out of a position. I need a position. So I, I eventually over a couple of years, I, I got of my position back big enough that it was like, it mattered. Yeah. Still when it was like, you know, it gone down from a thousand to, 200 at the bottom of that side, whatever yeah. it was yeah so that that was like i'd never go back and look like you asked me earlier and i kind of started going on about austrian economics and stuff but yeah. you asked me about the idealism and like the philosophy around spending bitcoin and all that stuff and <clears throat> i'm one of those people and i don't know if i'm different than most bitcoiners but i think that you should spend your bitcoin and you should like evangelize bitcoin and you should hold your bitcoin like Laszlo, the pizza guy, 
I'm sure didn't spend all of his Bitcoin on that pizza. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he had some more Bitcoin. You know, everybody says, oh, it's the $10 million pizza or whatever well, it was. A lot more was now, I think. A billion dollar pizza, whatever <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it's a lot. It's expensive uh, pizza. But I'm sure he had some other Bitcoins. I'm sure he didn't like spend all of his Bitcoin on that pizza. Yeah. And then he was he was actually the first, like in 2017, when the Lightning Network went live on mainnet, he was the first guy to make a purchase on the Lightning Network, and he bought a pizza again That's with awesome. Lightning. <laughs> I remember that. I forgot about it, but I remember it now. It's awesome. Um, so yeah, man, I think that it's okay to spend your Bitcoin. The, the only problem with spending Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency, frankly, at this point, is the, is the weird tax rules. Like you got to really measure your capital gain or loss. So hopefully they can get those de minimis rules through Congress and like yeah. make it so that you can spend a couple hundred dollars of your cryptocurrency and your Bitcoin without having to worry about capital gains and losses and all that shit. Yeah, that's where it gets kind of weird for me is because when I was first aware of Bitcoin, like I said, in the early 2010s or whatever, um, you know, I, I, I had to look back and see like when was my first ever tweet about Bitcoin because obviously I knew about it before then. So um I bet my awareness goes back to maybe 2010, but I don't know for sure. So, but it, it, nice. I was I was mocking it by 2012. So like, yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously I'd known about it for maybe a year or two by then. But like I said, then I thought of it purely as something that was transactional, you know, like it's just a thing you use on the Internet um, and not thinking of it as investments, even though I was investing. Right. When I started investing in it, then I essentially stopped thinking of it as transactional because I'm like, I'm doing right. this for investment purposes. Maybe some of it is because of what you said. Like the act of spending it is a pain in the butt from a uh, accounting perspective because it's like, okay, well, where'd this hundred bucks go? It's, oh, I spent that on something. I don't want to be you know, in the way you mix all that together. So now yeah, I'm looking about at a butt plug on the dark market. What's, what <laughs> yeah. of it? No, that was a, a capital gain and you have zero cost yeah. basis. It's <laughs> you like, don't care oh. what you're buying. You just need to declare your capital gain on that $5 yeah. transaction you made. Right. So, uh, so now I'm like, okay, well that's just all too too annoying. And I think in some ways that's kind of inhibits the natural use case of Bitcoin of being able to spend it and use it and things like that. But I'm really curious, what is it going to be like as we maybe do get back to that? And I think we're getting into a world where things get real interesting, right? Because we see PayPal custody, um, Bitcoin, and they just are talking about how not only can you buy and sell Bitcoin through PayPal, but they'll also start enable uh, transactions where Bitcoin is kind of your base currency with your balance in PayPal. I think that's actually where Square is going to go too is because, you know, they got the Square readers all over the place. But what about the small mom and pop shops? Well, what if they want to keep a certain amount of their account dollars in their account uh, in Bitcoin instead of sending them straight to fiat, straight to their bank? And essentially every company, large and small, has essentially the same idea of your as your micro strategies where they have a uh, portion of their, their treasury, a portion of their savings, a portion of their bank account that's both liquid and invested in, in Bitcoin in a harder money. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I think is fascinating because it can also bring on the adoption, bring on the actual usage, um, and also reduce the volatility over time, right? Because it's not just speculators and investors, but it's a whole bunch of Bitcoin that's just in people's wallets and banks. Yeah. It's complicated because Bitcoin is both a hard money, a sound money, a decentralized, apolitical asset. And it's also 
peer-to-peer cash and electronic money for the internet, right? <clears throat> and this is where, you know, that, that merchant that you described, like they could use an open source software, they could use BTC pay server or something like that. There's many merchants now that are using BTC pay server to accept um, Bitcoin. And actually they've got this thing called a pay to endpoint or something like that. I think it is where it's a form of mixing through purchasing. Mm. So your, your um, TXIDs, like oh, your, cool. your, your, sp- your unspent um, TXIDs, whatever, they, they kind of get mixed efficiently so that you'll get back change, but it's like a smaller TXID of someone else's and you don't know who, ha- who is what. So, that's the goal of things like BTC pay, t- BTC pay server, Wasabi, and Samurai Wallet is like, not only are we here for the, the, the Austrian sort of free money, hard money thing, but we're also here for free speech, privacy, and the sort of cypherpunk activism. Yeah, it's been fascinating to me to see the bull argument for Bitcoin shift a bit. Like it used to be anonymous and private and untraceable as things that were pros. And then it was like, wait. All of this is a public blockchain and it's super traceable. Like <laughs> you put, you know, chain analysis yeah. on there and it's like, holy crap, this flipped the script. And now that's bullish. It's like, no, government, this is not private. This is super public. Look at this in a way. In a way, it's the perfect <laughs> Trojan horse for mainstream adoption and, and Wall Street and all these banks and governments to not be so against it like they would be with Monero or shielded Zcash transactions or, or any of these other privacy coins because it is pseudonymous. It's it's like law enforcement officers that are trying to do chain analysis on like uh, Ponzi schemes and CP and like the, the drug markets, whatever. All there. They like Bitcoin. They don't like when people use Monero because it's harder to trace right now. Yeah. So in a way, it's like the perfect balance between pseudonymous transactions and that Trojan horse that allows governments to be okay with it enough to let it to not like sit there and try to like block it at every, every path, like choke out the endpoints for banking and stuff. So it's like, I don't know. Satoshi was a freaking game theory genius. Like, (laughs) I don't understand like how everything is playing out. I don't know how Satoshi played all this, how Satoshi planned all this, or if it was just total fluke, or if we're in the one universe of all the multiverses that bitcoin <laughs> succeeds in like maybe there's like a million universes where bitcoin failed and like ethereum is the number one coin or like the central bank digital currency is the number one coin or like all the bitcoiners are in jail or whatever but this is the one where where, where we've got a shot at sovereignty and fr- and like financial freedom in a way that like fights a- against the creeping surveillance capitalist state that we're seeing all over the world yeah and it's I, it's fascinating to me to see all that too. And I think maybe that's where the battle will be. Like Bitcoin will be legal, but you know, they'll go to bat against the operators of something like Wasabi or something, you know, enhancing that privacy. And then we'll end up with Supreme court cases where, uh, yeah, privacy initiatives. That'd be amazing. Yeah. It's like fascinating. <laughs> How does that constitutionally get protected? Which is obviously the, the good case there. Is where yeah. you know your transactions are considered private acts that the government can't infringe upon your ability to protect you know your ability to make those private, um, and I think those that's where the interesting battles will be, and we might see a Monero become illegal, but Bitcoin stay legal, or a you know the the mixers become illegal, or they go after the operators and call you know go hit them with money transmitter law or whatever else like 
there's going to be a lot of interesting battles on that front, I think, with crypto. But I do agree with you that the like Bitcoin itself is a little too far along the path that the United States, from a competitive standpoint, would really fail if they tried to make it illegal. Although people, uh, yeah, like, it, it's possible, but yeah, like ahead, Ray Dalio is a. I really like Ray Dalio's writings and uh, big debt crises. Per what we were talking about earlier, is a textbook. I mean, terrific textbook to learn about market cycles and. Um, inflationary and deflationary. He models them all. But he was uh, skeptical of Bitcoin is what I would say more than anything, leaving himself a, a window to be wrong. But part of his thing was, hey, if this does succeed, this uh, supplants the – or it, it replaces the government's capacity to essentially have the type of control they would want to have. And um, – I think gave some rational arguments, you know, for why I Bitcoin. I didn't would, like Ray Dalio's take on Bitcoin. I think he's just misinformed. I think he has bad advisors. I think on Bitcoin. Well, I think he's a rational thinker, though. Like he's approaching it. I, I don't think he understands Bitcoin. I, he, I really he don't may think not, he does. but I don't think. I he, think he thinks about it from like a from like a perspective of someone who's like a VC or like a a fund manager or like an Ethereum trader or something like somebody who. Somebody who doesn't understand truly the value of Bitcoin and what makes Bitcoin different than all the other altcoins and cryptocurrencies and stable coins and all this stuff, I, I don't think he really gets it. And a lot of those macro guys don't get Bitcoin, like Eric Townsend or whatever his yeah, name no. is from from Macro Voices, and and uh, like Jim Rickards and all these guys that are big gold proponents but are really skeptical on Bitcoin. They have really weak arguments in my in my mind. I don't think they really understand what Bitcoin is. Yeah, and my argument to Dalio and uh, I've interviewed Eric for the show before too. Um, you had Eric Townsend on here? Yeah, yeah. After he wrote his book. Oh, sick! I have to go back and watch that one. Yeah. So, um, how'd you get him on? I, I've just listened to their podcast for a long time and emailed him when the book came out and said, "Hey, man, I'd love to interview you uh, cool. about the book." So he gave his case for the you know the the central bank digital currency and why he thought that would essentially supplant Bitcoin. Um, but for Dalio, I think one of the risks he sees, and I don't think it's not unjustified, but I don't think it will work in the same way that the, the reason Uber and Lyft succeeded was that it was a bottom-up groundswell, right? It's um, yeah, exactly. the CFTC it, it, chairman's daughter that's like, you can't yeah. do this. Um, but it's like people that say, uh, we're not riding taxis. This app is so much better. Yeah, screw, yeah. screw the local regulations. Like, and they yeah, just kinda, do it anyway. Yeah. They kind of work. It, it, it's a groundswell that works its way up. Um, and, and plus like you look at Dalio's championing and, and cheerleading of, of, of China right now. And it really makes me think he's almost like. Like he's compromised or something. No, not I've, in a, in, not his in a book, conspiratorial his way. His book but. is really interesting in regards to why he says that about China. I think it's mostly a a trend shift of um, how economic progress is essentially forced, and um, I think he has a more a much more a more nuanced take than you're probably giving him credit for. In the same way that. Uh, he's not like he's looking at Bitcoin and dismissing it. Probably, more probably. Than, and he, like, I, I feel like his response after that was kind of more more open minded. Like, well, maybe I can be missing yeah, something. Yeah, he said I need to maybe look. I'm missing something about Bitcoin. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And maybe and I'm I, missing something about why Ray Dalio was cheerleading. Yeah. I mean, a, Ray Dalio, this regime that has like yeah. concentration camps and m well, murders millions of people every year. Maybe I'm missing something about why he's promoting that. Well, I don't. It's not about promotion. I think for him, I think it's more about. 
analysis in terms of what creates an economic superpower. I don't think you can look at the U.S. versus China and not see China as a threat to the U.S.'s global superpower. And you you lose a lot of things in that scenario, right? Like a lot of the liberties and freedoms that are distinctly American – the Chinese view may be more uh, or is much more state driven, right, for the good of the whole rather than for the liberty of the individual. And I think Dalio is just saying from an economic perspective, they have a very strong case for growth because look at the number of people. Look at the amount of production that's still left, yeah. the the amount that they can still take advantage of the production production potential of society um, – Anyway, so his books have a lot more detail on that, but I don't think it's like a a pro-China view so strongly in terms of uh, you know like he that he believes politically in what they're doing. But I think he I don't does. know how you can separate the two, though. I I don't know how you can not look at what China represents, not China, the Chinese people, but the Communist Party of China, and and think that it's okay to promote that and not fight against that. Like that is the enemy of freedom and the enemy of like any kind of moral moral like respect of humanity. Really, like I don't know how you can invest in that and, and sleep at night. You but could, maybe he's could you so say, rich. Could that, you say no? I don't think he's. I think he's. A, I think he's much more pragmatic than you're giving him. Maybe I'm propping him up too hard, but I I think his. I think you. I think you would appreciate at least reading his book, even if you end up really disagreeing with I've, it. I've not, I haven't read that one. I read um, principles. A, I read some of principles, not the whole thing, but I, it's on my list. Like I, I yeah. do respect Ray Dalio. I think he's brilliant. I don't think he's like one of these like evil henchmen that a lot of people paint out like George Soros and, and Dalio and all these billionaires to be. Yeah. Of course not. But I just don't get why he's such a champion of like capitalism and and everything and then he goes and cheerleads china while shitting on bitcoin which is like the one free speech money that we have and the one ability to fight back against government censorship and and financial censorship yeah that's like, like a- if we go we go down the road of what china's doing with like social credit scores and alipay and we pay and all like it's nuts you're you don't have any real freedom in china if you're a chinese citizen it's all about the ccp like you have to not engage in any kind of disobedience and yeah, you can lose your ability to to have money if you do that like it's crazy yeah i agree with you in terms of the risks i'm just saying and i don't know if it's such if it's like an appreciation of that stance or if it's an appreciation of the economic potential of a country as it develops into not only a first world country but a global superpower economically you know what i mean um and, yeah, and but, but without there. without without being calling out the 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 human rights issues and without calling out the Communist Party of China, he's actually creating a net negative situation for the world. Even if he's trying to help the Chinese people, say if he's doing that, like the Chinese Communist Party is not good for the the Chinese people or for the world or for democracy or capitalism or free markets or freedom at all. Yeah. So so how do you like? I like Kyle Bass. His take on this, when I like watching him talk about it because he's talking about it from like an investor's perspective, but also calling out all of the all of the horrible things that the Communist Party of China does, and recognizes the the shortfalls. Where Ray Dalio just seems like he's like cheerleading them. Yeah, 
I don't know. I'm going to just let you have that because I don't. We're out. We're getting well outside the scope. Um, but I do think. But it's not okay. So let me wrap that back in though, because like that is one of the reasons why Bitcoiners are so like uh, philosophically aligned with Bitcoin. Not just because it's Bitcoin and because number go up and orange coin good and shit coins bad and like all that stuff. It's because we're in this for the reasons that it's the cypherpunks like Hal Finney and those guys. Uh, we're fighting governments for 20, 30, 40 years creating encryption technology to be able to ke- allow you to keep your privacy online and, and try to create a form of cash that's like physical cash, you know, on the Internet where you have your privacy and you're not being surveilled and censored for your, your transactions. And that's why central bank digital currencies like what China's doing and stable coins and other blockchain monies, like any non-perfectly or optimally decentralized cryptocurrency, is a Trojan horse for tyranny. And that's why we fight against it, because if Bitcoin doesn't win, something else that is not decentralized is going to win, and then governments will co-opt that. And then before we know it, we're going to lose the ability to have the one piece of uh, this technology that would have retained our any any like ability to keep our online privacy with money um, intact? Yeah. yeah, and I and I think a lot of those people they are and maybe it's just like laying down before the fight, but I think they are essentially their their argument is that that is the inevitable case, not that that is a possible case. Whereas most Bitcoiners would say, we know that's a possible case, but that's not what we want to fight against that scenario. Um, yeah, but it's also that some like most. It's not just most. Most people, some people are doing that. Like uh, Jihan Wu from Bitmain is one of those people that are laying down. And like three years ago, he basically started a company that was consulting with governments and trying to create digital central bank currencies and like creating surveillance tools and things like that. So we, you know, people wonder why why there was a the Segwit two X fork wars and all that well it was just a war of philosophies and and mindsets and there's i I can't think of any real bitcoiner or bitcoin maximalist or austrian free money guy that would be like yeah let's let's help the central banks create digital currency no i don't think so either i think uh i i think a lot of people can look at what a a you know, a centralized digital currency or a government-backed digital currency, the risks that that poses um, for anyone anyone participating in this and all on the back of technology that was created for the core purpose to go against that, which is kind of a sick irony of it. And, th- the, and the crappy thing too is that a lot of the altcoin people and like VCs and exchanges and all this, they're all jumping on the bandwagon and they're like leeching off of Satoshi's invention and, uh. and the really good reasons to have Bitcoin and they're they're tagging it with stable coins and saying, Oh, this is this is what Bitcoin was supposed to be, looping back to the original sort of point you were making, which was Bitcoin is a store of value, not a unit of account, not a method of exchange. So that's gonna make people want to hoard it and hodl it and not spend it into society to create productive uh jobs and 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 productivity increases or whatever but that is just because of the gresham's law which is that good money or bad money drives out good in a spending economy so if there's a shitty money that goes down in purchasing power and a piece of gold 
people are going to want to not spend their piece of gold. They're going to want to hoard their piece of gold because that's their stored value. That's their, their work and their, their energy and time. That's stored value for them. They're going to hold on to that because it's going to retain its value over this piece of shit fiat inflationary <laughs> money that they want to get rid of and spend as soon as they can. But over time, as Bitcoin goes to a million dollars per coin, Bitcoin will then re-enter the wider economy as a method of exchange. So I, I don't know. I'm just like frustrated by stable coins and stuff because I feel like it's a Trojan horse for surveillance, it capitalism may, and everything. It may be. I think there's some elements of it that I can understand. Like if you're going to have, let's say, smart contracts that um, manage a real estate transaction, then from a unit account of account perspective, a stable coin can be significantly more useful uh, than denominating in Bitcoin. An algorithmic stable coin, I, I could see, but a a, a, a peg tether, stable coin. But, yeah, but I'm saying like a tether or a circle or USDC or something like that. That's just somebody else's dollars. That's not yeah, I just view it as a I just view it as a a hybrid or a stopgap for being able to manage unit of account in a smart contract. Yes. It has some risk for sure. If you're not doing any like if you're not doing anything that you you need freedom or free speech or censorship resistance or anything like that then yeah there's some definite utility in having electronic money and it's not like there's not going to be central bank digital currencies money is digital already it's not like somehow bitcoin is going to stop the central banks from using blockchain technology or distributed ledger technology or whatever even digital centralized databases with each other they're going to do it it's just it's going to happen but Bitcoin just kind of accelerated that trend, and it's an option for for all the people in the world, the billions of people that live under tyranny and I you think, know, oppression. Yeah, I think what there's good and bad, I guess. Um, depends on how you approach it. My thing is, I am a fish in this big ocean, right? Of uh, Bitcoin plus all this other crap. I didn't invent any of it. However. These markets essentially trade against one another, and I didn't get in Bitcoin early enough to where it is cheap enough for me to get this allocation and whatever so I can just sit on it. So for me to earn more Bitcoin and still believe in this case that Bitcoin has significant potential value in the future, the best way to angle for that is twofold. One, the stack sats over time and slowly method which is good and fine and probably the right way for most people with with that upside of you know you stacked sats and that's what you did that's what you end up with Altern- right. alternatively the difference maker type of money is by actively trading it and trying to get cute right yeah, that's what, for that's sure. what all of us traders do so got to get it man go after it get well, that get that sat so that's what that's essentially the reason I approach it that way so I'm not like trading altcoins because I believe that you know XYZ coin is going to take over Bitcoin uh, from a fundamental perspective or that I believe it's, it's better philosophically. It's just a trade. You know what I mean? Like these yeah. exist. And that, that, that's th- like, like it's like stock trading or Forex trading or, or anything. It's just you can do this on Uniswap. Right. And I'm essentially at the end of the day, I'm denominating myself in Bitcoin because I think Bitcoin will be worth more from a buying power perspective or just a pure dollars perspective, however you want to look at it. Um, Do you find like, I mean, I respect that and I relate with that too. When I lost most of my Bitcoin, I had that mentality too. Yeah, and I was like, like, you oh, know, crap, I got to earn it back. I got to 10 yeah, this mean, Bitcoin. 
I had some Bitcoin, but I'm like, I need more Bitcoin. I got to get my Bitcoin back. Like, I got to build up my stack back. And it was like mining, working for Bitcoin, putting more money in, which I didn't have anymore because I spent it all on like my business and like, right. you know, mining and stuff like that. So, but even if you would, say, I'm going to put a thousand dollars a month in towards this, and it's like, well, that's still not going to get me there. Like, <laughs> you know, I need to, yeah, I need yeah, to have that's, a, that's, a larger flywheel. That and, was my mentality, but. I think it was a short-term, short-sighted viewpoint because if I had to just poured everything I, I had into buying Bitcoin and just holding on to it rather than trying to mine and rather than trying to invest in altcoin like counterparty and all this stuff back in the day when there was the first ICOs, <laughs> yeah. I was like investing in these things, like just throwing some Bitcoin at them, trying to like make more Bitcoin. And that ended up being... Probably worse than just no, definitely than worse than stacks. just just holding on to like buying Bitcoin. Yeah, I right. should have just bought Bitcoin and held on to it for like five years. Yeah, and I think that that is probably the case for most people. And one of the things I view is that there's a uh, there's a lot of polarization between both realms. Right? There's this Bitcoin maximalism. How dare you touch an altcoin? And then there's like 100% shitcoin all the time, all with this facade of earning more Bitcoin, but never in Bitcoin. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. never kind of respecting Bitcoin for being <clears throat> the, ki the king of cryptocurrencies and to rule the cycle at times. And mm -hmm. what I try to bring, and I think that some of the people that I relate with do as well, is like there are times to uh, essentially trade in order to earn more Bitcoin take advantage of those narrow windows, recognize the fact that you are in a cycle. That cycle will not end. You're not going to become a community member of something as what's going to take over Bitcoin, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, talking about the power of those network effects, the power of that brand recognition and the um, likelihood that Bitcoin, and if you look towards, you know, beyond as money and look towards like, as code, Ethereum being dominant in that realm, the network effects are so strong for those projects that that's kind of where I want my basis to be. But I'm still going to take advantage of the trades because I want to, to level up my capacity. Right. That is not easy to do. And that's what I always try to make clear when I talk. Because this is a trading podcast. This is not our typical type of conversation, right? Usually we're talking about how do you make money or how do you increase your Bitcoin I, I don't want to make any bones about it that it's easy because other than narrow windows where it's like number go up, <laughs> you know, like across the board, mm -hmm. usually that's not the case. So you're you're essentially trying to maybe keep a toe in the water, but also preserve your buying power from a Bitcoin perspective. Um, but it's not what I would call the easy path. But for some people, it can yeah. be the difference maker path to where it it does uh, uh, enable you to kind of fulfill some of those broader those broader goals and dreams. I I can I can definitely understand and respect the thought there. I'm concerned and this is why maximalists are like maximalists. It's 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 not that everybody that's a maximalist is just like against altcoins. The thing is that for me anyways I never talk really about any investments I do in altcoins and stuff like that. I I I'm only doing it to get more Bitcoin and sometimes to get some of the treasury of the shitcoin VCs or whatever. I'm trying to like drain their treasury and dump on them when 
their token pumps <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Like I'm motivated by that sometimes, but I'll never really like go and publicly like talk about trades and stuff like that because I know that most people aren't traders and most people online especially are just trying to get rich and they're just they're just sucked into the casino by the 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 shining lights and the spinning numbers of Uniswap and the mega APYs of these food Ponzi coins and and altcoins in general that's why Binance and Coinbase are so so successful but what does that give back to the world to me it's like it gives back nothing it gives back like a a false narrative that a new person coming into this space will look at cryptocurrencies as if they're the same as Bitcoin. And and like you're not really an example of this because you are pretty reasonable and like you are like respect Bitcoin and stuff like that. But most of these like YouTube shows and, and like altcoin influencers and stuff – they're really just like penny stock forex trader guys that are also trading cryptocurrencies because it's it's easy to make money. It's, it's yeah, they're selling a, they're selling some kind of dream. Like this is the or they just don't get it. Yeah, maybe that's it. And I think it's more of like here's your here's your window. And over time, as you know, the crowd gets like more clever, I guess, in terms of what's what's going to be valuable at the end of the day. I mean, you mm-hmm. saw, we saw it playing around in these Uniswap games, I didn't look at this and say like, hey, everybody look at this. This is the future. This is going to go up 100x. It's going to be valuable for years and years. Some of these cycles on these things were like a day. <laughs> you know, like... Five hours. You got to get, get in, provide some liquidity and get out before you sneeze. Right. So is that, um, is that a glamorous... Is that a glamorous way to stack sats? Absolutely not. Um and I think that there's a moral hazard there if you're if you're talking about these as like this is the future or anything like that. But I think if you go in with the basis of this is a trade, this is a swing setup, uh, then I think there's a at least some clarity there that everybody has essentially the same. But how goals. many how many of your viewers do you think are smart enough to get that? And how many, like what percentage do you think of them are just like, you don't interact with them all, I bet, but what percent do you think? I think it depends on does, how, does, I think you it doesn't have like principled, like reason for why they're in this space. I think you end up um, either educating or attracting the people that are going to uh, understand and commiserate, I guess, with your, your point of view. And, we talk often about essentially profit maximalism and in the long term, Bitcoin being by far the most secure investment in regards to achieving that. Mm-hmm. It's not like the only way. And if you told me right now, it's like, well, here's um, your path to getting, uh, I don't know, a thousand Bitcoin or you know some dollar amount, like, but you can only have one of them in 10 years. Like, which one are you going to choose? Like, that's a hard conversation for somebody like me. I'm not maximalist enough to to look at it side by side because I, I don't know how much I believe in the million dollars a coin scenario. You know what I'm saying? So like if you say five years from now, you either have a thousand Bitcoin or a thousand times $50,000, but you have it in dollars, That's you either get the dollars or the Bitcoin five years from now. You give mm-hmm. me that option, I'm probably gonna take the dollars. Like that's kind of my... um my assumption that the most likely scenario is that the status quo continues. Whereas I feel like this 
hyper-Bitcoinization type of argument is that the status quo will fail. It will fail sooner than later, and that pulls in hyper-Bitcoinization. Well, that's not necessarily the argument for a million dollars Bitcoin. That's the argument for like a $10 million Bitcoin. That's the argument for denominating in Bitcoin. That's the argument for the dollar fails and all fiat currencies fail. We go into a depression, a World War yeah. III, and things have to be denominated in something. So the only stable like unit of value that no country can interfere with is Bitcoin. And so I, that's where people start to denominate their to, balance. I have to say, I had to re like reconfigure my brain on that because to me, my brain was like, um, you know, 50K is the moon or something like that, right? Like maybe 100K is insanity. That was my 2017 brain. You know what right. I mean? Right. Uh, whereas now, what's weird is we have um, hedge funds, long-term investors talking about gold parity. Right. And not just right. in price, but in market cap. Market cap. Yeah, that's, and, a, that's a 70, 60, 70 X from here. Right. And that hurts. Like that hurts my brain. I'm, my brain is not accustomed yet to that because I'm not philosophically there to say this is obvious. I'm philosophically right. there to say this is possible. You know what I mean? Well, you know what? It's not possible with Ethereum. No, I'm, I'm talking about with Bitcoin. Like, I'm talking about. Oh, with Bitcoin. I know, but like, if you think any, there's, it's not possible for any other cryptocurrency to get to parity with gold. There, there's just zero chance that that Ethereum, with all of their centralization and all of their forks, like David Hoffman, if you're listening and he does listen to the show, if you're listening. I'm going to let you critique this at some point on the show because he's going to have I'd love to talk to David Hoffman, man. Like <laughs> I listen to his podcast quite a few times, actually. I think he's got a lot of uh, like naive views on, on Bitcoin. Like I don't think he understands really Bitcoin. I think he overestimates the value of um, what Ethereum is doing. Like to me, I don't want to. I don't want to be like disrespectful of of people's views there because I, I I'm a very principled like re, I have a principled reason for why I got into Bitcoin, and most maximalists are principled for the reasons of hard money maximalism, Austrian economics, free speech, privacy, and I think the point of view of those like an Ethereum. Uh, let's call them maximalist for lack of a better word, is essentially that the monetary policies shifting under our feet with uh, with especially the transition to ETH 2.0. Um, that's the very short version of what I'll give for what David would say, but I'll let David speak for himself. He's been on here once before, but you know I've learned a lot more about Ethereum since then too, and we need to rehash that. Um, but I just wanted to highlight that there is a there is a contingent of Ethereum folks, especially that truly do think Ethereum's addressable market cap is magn like magnitudes yeah. larger. Um, and it's it's crazy to me to think that something like Ethereum that has so much centralization would ever achieve any kind of market cap like competing with with gold, because people that are getting into Bitcoin in terms of uh, treasury reserve asset you know like allocation sovereign wealth fund allocation stuff like that they're getting into bitcoin because of segwit2x and the history of bitcoin and the fact that it's not it's not going to shift it's the 21 million bitcoin limit is the meme that attracts the scarcity the valuers of scarcity and the valuers of gold People that see the value of gold, it's not because it's a shiny metal that's used in electronics and jewelry. 
It's because yeah. it's it's a it's a mass illusion. It's a mass mass like agreement that we all value this thing because it's scarce and it's been used as money for a long time. Ethereum is Ethereum has the potential to gain on Bitcoin, but I don't think it will because like Bitcoin's got the Lindy effect right now for sure. And when you look at Google, even like regular people are searching for Bitcoin. They're not searching for Ethereum or crypto or DeFi or any of this stuff. They're searching for Bitcoin. And then they get into the endpoints. The, the touch points are like Binance and Coinbase and all these shitcoin apps that sell these people that are looking for Bitcoin, Ethereum and like stable coins and things like that that aren't what they're looking for. Yeah, so I think <sighs> I just mean that because of that, there is a chance that the Lindy effect of Bitcoin can can get overtaken by Ethereum. There's a chance. I'm not saying it will, but I think the chance of Ethereum reaching the market cap of gold is zero. Like there is a chance of Ethereum overtaking Bitcoin, See, but in that world, cryptocurrency is dead. It like, fails. Okay. Yeah, I, I I see where you're going with that, and I I would I would this is just my personal disagreement in this sense. I think that I think that I've shifted my mindset to believe that Bitcoin can reach and surpass the market cap of gold, like the size of gold's market cap at any given time. I think the Uberification, right, with Bitcoin, like we talked about earlier, right, that is very possible. I can see that that realm. Similarly, I can see where um, when Ethereum, if it succeeds, it's had, it's had shifting narratives over the years already in its short life. But if mm-hmm. it succeeds at this one's this one of being kind of a backbone of the financial ecosystem, maybe there's a realm where um, Ethereum's addressable market cap is not only that of, uh, of what you see with gold, but also what do you see with um, yeah, greater that... greater parts of the economy, right? The financial backbone of the economy and other the bond market. Or what, what, what if the that's bond a, market ends that's up That's a Ethereum? super flawed narrative and a I'm just terrible saying, logic. I'm just I know that's, what what, I know that's not what you think. That's what they think. And you see people people like Spencer Noon and David Hoffman and whoever else tweeting this stuff out there. And it's just like, oh, I cringe every time I see it. I have to start muting them. I started muting these guys recently because I just see, can't, I love listening I to them because I, I need this. Uh, I need this this battle, you know, I need it to occur. Um, because for me, it's not really, a, it's not really a, a, like an intellectually honest thing to say though, because well, they may say, well, just to push back, they may say yours is not. In, of course they would say that. Say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me say like Ethereum's total addressable market cap is not the value that goes on to Ethereum. It's it just because let's say that they get this, you know, this, I think it's not going to happen. Why would a, why would the, stock markets of the world give up their control, their centralized control, and put it on a public blockchain that's inefficient and slow and controlled by Vitalik and Consensus and this group of developers who can change the thing whenever they want. Well, the only reason they would do that is if they can control it and if the governments can censor transactions and and control the the blockchain. And if they can do that, then that's... Why is that valuable? Well, I do think we've seen a lot of evidence that... Right now, very few projects are decentralized, like almost no projects are decentralized. And the ability to what, roll it back or to seize funds or to do something again. On Ethereum. It, yeah. Yeah. Like basically yeah. it's all. Tornado a, Cash is decentralized. Uniswap was sort of decentralized. It is. Uh, it is but those aren't. 
uh, well, Uniswap has coins now, but those yeah, coins are owned by the VCs. Thing. The governance is impossible without the the buy-in of the team and VCs. That I, I'm just saying, I don't think most of that ecosystem has gotten anywhere close to the stuff that. Of course, truly well, works. let's let's forget about like let's forget about the those arguments. So let's say that works, and governments, or say say the the bond markets and forex markets and all the real estate in the world starts to like tokenize on Ethereum. Like David Hoffman has a real T platform <laughs> that he tokenizes real estate. And like, let's say that blows up and everybody starts using that. Okay. First of all, all of these things cannibalize the value of the ETH token itself. So it's not going to make the ETH coin go up in value. The apps go up in value. The app tokens go up in value, yeah. Unless the monetary theory behind Ethereum itself moves to something different. To yeah, where but the culture the usage, of Ethereum but the use, is where printing the, tokens. Not, 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 not really in their long-term models. It's after It doesn't matter those, what their models say. Look at what they do. For, for it, four years, all they do is promote ICOs and sell these like, well, those overvalued... Well, those are tokens for the apps, and I agree with you there. I don't understand the... That some of that gets really complicated. They just for the apps, a, they they say it's for the apps, but it's actually for them to get hilariously rich off of retail investors when they yeah. dump it on Coinbase. I think, Coinbase I think and, they should just adopt the the security token model is just way better in my mind. Yeah, the security tokens so just make call, sense to me. Call a spade a spade. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. So I agree with that. But Ethereum itself. So I've always viewed it as if Bitcoin is gold, Ethereum is oil, right? And you know, oil trades in a range maybe it's reflected by inflation somewhat there are trades in oil but my investment i prefer in gold like for my preservation of buying power in the long term that's how i kind of view it but i know that there's shifts in terms of the economic models for ethereum itself are trying to shift because essentially you'd be eating more ethereum as the network is used over the years so that I, I, there's some extraordinary amount of ethereum that are being printed in the next two years but they're acting like the model starts to shift after that, and that kind of brings on the cycle of Ethereum's, you know, Moonscape, <laughs> 10x Bitcoin, whatever. Brad, I'm going to have to go. My family's going to be here soon. What do you want? <laughs> I've had a great time talking today, but what do you uh, what do you want to leave us with? Your parting thoughts for people that are if they're in this far, they're interested in this from the theoretical landscape, but they're also probably traders or you know thinking about these things from a making profit perspective what do you want to leave them with i would say that please um start to learn about the history of money and start to pay pay attention a little bit more to bitcoiners from a a more open-minded perspective um bitcoiners don't like altcoins not because altcoins are bad and all this stuff but bitcoiners are more into um the philosophical, like fundamental reasons of decentralization. See, the dog likes that. Yeah, roof, roof. She's, she's cheering you on. Ethereum is not decentralized to the level of Bitcoin, and it's getting more and more centralized as time goes on. And and sure, there's a place for that in the market. Obviously, if you're trading, you're trying to make more whatever. You're trying to make more ETH, or you're trying to make more BTC, you're trying to make more dollars because you're you're just not there yet. Yeah, that's what we live that's on is dollars. Fine. Yeah, we're 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 in that world right now. But just like I really don't want people to get sucked into this you know t- toxic bitcoiner, bitcoin maximalist, you know, like dumb meme that's going to actually cause them to lose out on the greatest 
gain they will ever have, which is just holding Bitcoin for 10 years. And if they believe that Ethereum is going to flip in Bitcoin, I mean, just it's not good to be in that cognitive dissonance bubble or that echo chamber. And and like, just be more open-minded about Bitcoin and, and try to like, I'd say, listen to my podcast, you know, like I try to look at these things open-minded more, more so than I might appear on Twitter or stuff, but listen to some Bitcoin podcasts and, um, follow, follow, um, who's a good person to follow? Oh boy. I'm trying to think of somebody that's not too toxic to altcoin traders. <laughs> that's a good influencer. I like Will. I like Will Panda personally. Um, I think he's not so active anymore, though. Uh, I don't know. I think he's uh, he's a, he's, pre- he's fairly active. There's a lot of Bitcoin maximalists that I I have a hard time with. Uh, I'll tell you who I really like the tales from the crypt guys. Like they're those guys are great. They're yeah. purists. They're technical. They're uh, also believers. Um, and I I think that I think that's the most straightforward path that I would tell most people if they want exposure to Bitcoin to take that path. Like. I'm on a. I, I try to take a narrower path with higher upside, but I know that that also encompasses higher risks. So, I if I was telling like my dad, like, come get into crypto, I would tell mm-hmm. my dad the Matt O'Dell method. Right. I would, I would not just dollar cost average Bitcoin. Forget about it. Yeah. Don't think about learn it. Learn about come, learn learn about why it's important. Right. Come back in ten years. Understand the tech. You know. Try to maintain your privacy. Your custody. And you know what. The other thing I would like to say before we go is yeah. that if you are finding yourself, if whoever, if you're the guy out there, or the girl, whatever, listening, and you're trying to make money, but you find yourself unable to control your emotions and execute your trades properly. If you're failing you, to trade, then you can you succumb. Switch. Like, maybe you shouldn't be a trader. Maybe you should be just a holder. And maybe you should, like, have at least half Bitcoin. If you're one of those people that like listen to David Hoffman and those people and, and like you're a hundred percent, like you think ETH is going to flip in Bitcoin, whatever. And, and you're not doing well in terms of Bitcoin, like measure your portfolio in Bitcoin. If you're down in Bitcoin, just consider that maybe you shouldn't be a trader and that's okay. Like it's not, you don't, yeah, ha- you're still you on a narrow, you're still on a narrow path by getting into crypto. Don't screw it up and lose everything. If you're, and you're still early too. Yeah, if you still if you feel like you're not um, not succeeding at what you're doing, it's okay to be a hum, a humble sat stacker. If you want to go beyond that, if you want to try to multiply your Bitcoin, you got to know that you're if you succeed, you're not in the major, you're in a minority, right? Like most people won't. Most people will end up with fewer sats because of uh, trading, but that may be a risk worth taking to you. That's the risk that I take. Right. And for me, it's worked out. That's okay. Um, But I'm not trying to act like that's for everyone. What books do you recommend people read to learn about risk management? And like, I'm glad you say that because I think risk management is the primary thing that people need to understand. Um, I don't know that I would like throw a book out there and say, this is the book you need to read about risk management. Because when I was learning my hard lessons, there's a lot of things that are pretty crypto specific. Like, the degree of a drawdown that's rational in a bear market. Like it's Bitcoin itself has massive drawdowns, like huge cyclical moves, 60, 70, 80% down. 
and what you if you get too drawn into any kind of altcoin thing you have to know the cycle because the drawdowns for altcoins because they are mostly vaporware are 90% plus even for the ones that have some kind of longer term use case the for for most altcoins it's 99% plus that's just different than equity markets where there's real value that's created because there's a company that makes something and sells something and has revenue and profit and dividends and assets. This is a whole different world. So there's a lot of things that are hard to understand because when you talk about risk profiles, they're completely different. The risk in every altcoin trade, if you hold, which is not that's – that's where it changes for me is you just don't become a holder. You become a trader and you um, – so it's it's different, but yeah, I need to compile like here's my resources for X Y Z. I think there's a few people that you can follow that are rational and smart um, and analytical. Um, the guys at Technical Roundup, um, Crypto Cred, and Don Alt, I think, are great traders. Josh and I, I mean, that's what we do on this podcast on the on the ones we record on Fridays is we talk about crypto from a trading perspective, um, books wise. It's a little tougher because not as many that are like crypto specific are going to give you that trade management guide. That's you know so what I like that important. was that was relevant for crypto traders, the complete turtle trader. Have you ever heard that one? Mm-mm. Really good book about this guy Richard Dennis from the eighties who was a a futures uh, commodity trader who's doing really well. And the markets back then were like the same as the crypto markets now. They were like highly unregulated and they're really volatile. And um, it's a it's a fun, entertaining story about this guy putting up an ad basically on Craigslist to hire like 20 traders to trade for him on a bet to see whether or not trading was was like a skill or if it could be learned easily by anybody. Yeah. So him and his partner did this bet and they like hired these random people off the street to come manage millions of dollars for them. And he just printed out every day the trades, the rules, and they had to just follow the rules. And so through the book, it's, it's not too long. It's 150 pages, something like that. It's an auto, you can listen to it on Audible. It teaches you good risk management and good ways to like think about portfolio risk management and trade position sizing. Yeah, and I'll, have like to that che- I'll have to read that because I'd be interested in ones that have a better corollary. What I would typically say, though, is don't treat crypto like it's the top 100 S&P, right? It's not. It's not those level of companies. You're, it's more equivalent to these random industries with small caps and pink sheets and speculative companies where it's whether it's junior miners or if it's uh shipping stocks and like these random sectors that tend to be insane uh think of it more like how people would approach those i do listen to several legacy market podcasts that are helpful in that regard but anyway we'll we'll save resources for another day but there are a lot of good resources out there um Take take everything with a grain of salt, you know, like you need to do your research and you need to manage your downside. One principle that's really great to remember is you want to you want to keep your losses small. You're going to have plenty of losses. You want to keep your losses small and then some of your wins will be small. And then the majority of your gains will be in a a small number of big wins. So you want to be able to ride those big ride the big winners, have some small winners, some small losers but you want to have no or as few as possible big losers. And the more and that you, you don't want to have any impermanent losers either. <laughs> you don't. Yeah. The impermanent, my Twitter handle right now says impermanent capital. Um, mostly as a reminder to not be that right. Like we want to, we yeah. want to keep that capital permanent. Once you hit, a I don't threshold, know why they named it impermanent loss. It's because permanent it's, loss. it's pretty much permanent <laughs> loss. Yeah. 
So it's and it's double loss when when the uh, when the token be, you got goes down too. Yeah, it can so be brutal. Anyways, I think uh, I think I like that saying that you had there, Brian. We'll end on that, I suppose. That you can look, you can just think about Bitcoin as oil and ETH as the toxic sludge. <laughs> well, I was thinking Bitcoin as gold and then ETH as oil. Oh, did I hear that wrong? Yeah, you must have heard that wrong. But that's okay. Oh. I like your revisionist history. That's fine. <laughs> Brad, it's great talking to you. I hope uh, people will follow you on Twitter and listen to your podcast as well. I've been enjoying the last interviews that you had on there. Um, Thank you. Y'all had a real fun one, I think, with your neighbor uh, talking yes, about the history yeah, yeah. of uh, like colonial money. That was a really fun one. Yeah, that um, was an interesting one. And I had one with a constitutional uh, money expert, too, a few podcasts before. That's where I learned about like the uh, the different times in history how money has been debased and yeah how we the u.s went off the gold standard and things like that so yeah i'd like Good to delve stuff. into those things and i think this might be my longest show ever so we're going to leave it here before we get to two hours if you were here the whole time thank you so much really appreciate you being here uh we will talk to you next time see i guess later. next time might be a debate with david hoffman we'll have to see oh yeah if he listens all the way through we'll, we'll, we'll give him a test see if he caught it all the way through all right we'll catch y'all next time see you later I hope you got something from this episode. Thanks for listening. And before you go, I just want to ask if you've been enjoying the podcast to please leave me a review. I'd really appreciate that. I'm starting to get some more reviews in. That's great. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash Bitcoin and let me know what you think.